Welcome everyone to this, which is the 21st now in our series of podcasts brought to you by Good Thinking, London's digital mental wellbeing service. My name's Tracy Parr and I'm the Director of Transformation for Good Thinking, which provides round-the-clock mental wellbeing support for Londoners. Our podcasts are to help listeners make sense of a world affected by COVID-19. They are available across all podcast channels. We would really appreciate it if you could share, rate and review our podcasts. In this podcast, our clinical director, Dr. Richard Graham, is in discussion with Professor Kevin Fenton. Kevin is the Regional Director for Public Health in London for Public Health England, and he's going to discuss a public health response to a pandemic. In this episode, Kevin will unpack all of the knowledge and thinking behind the public health response to COVID-19, and he shares how looking after your health is the best way to protect yourself in the future. Who knew you could sail a ship at the same time as building it? Over to you, Richard and Kevin. Thank you, Tracy, And thank you, Kevin, so much for giving us your time today, because we understand that you have so many demands upon you. Many of us, when we think of health, are actually going to be thinking about what's more visible to us in terms of our GP or perhaps hospitals and the wider NHS. But perhaps until recently, many people would not have been quite as aware as we are now about how important public health is. I wonder if you could tell our listeners something about the work of Public Health England or what a director of public health might be doing much of the time, which we don't see. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. And you're absolutely right that the way we think about health today has changed dramatically. And one, and I'll be the first one to say I'm really happy about that, because now we understand that health is more than the absence of disease. Uh, health is about our physical or mental or social or spiritual health and well-being. And that more holistic approach to health means that achieving health is actually more than having access to high-quality health care services, but it is about the social, the environmental, the economic uh, realities in which we find ourselves and which helps to dictate how we're able to both thrive in our local communities, how we're able to interact with others, and how we're able to live a long, healthy and happy life. So I wanted to start by just perhaps expanding how we think about health, because it's in that context that our work in Public Health England and what we do as directors of public health working in local authorities or at the regional level becomes incredibly important. Public Health England is an executive agency. It's a part of the Department of Health and Social Care. It exists to improve the health of the population and to reduce health inequalities. And we do this through a number of ways. We do this through providing evidence-based advice to inform policy and to develop prevention programs that are then delivered by local authorities or by our partners at working at the local level. We do this through running big national health campaigns. And you would have seen with our Change for Life program for kids, or, uh, or programs related to preventing COVID or uh, improving mental health. We improve health by working with and supporting directors of public health and local authorities to really focus on programs such as helping to quit smoking, to improve physical activity, to tackle and improve healthy weight, straight through to clinical programs such as our immunization and screening programs, and of course, the NHS Health Track program, which ensure that we are either preventing health issues 
from uh, becoming severe, or we're intervening early to diagnose conditions so that people can uh, receive the care that they need. Public Health England is also the national centre that is involved with the diagnosis and management of infectious diseases and outbreaks of infectious diseases. And we do this through our infectious disease experts working both nationally and at local levels. So you can well imagine we have been formally involved in the response to the COVID pandemic, providing advice, directing uh, interventions at the local level, supporting local authorities and communities across the country to respond to the pandemic, and of course, developing policy in partnership with the Department of Health and the NHS. Finally, as a public health agency, we're also involved with uh, protection and resilience. So whether it is looking at uh, flood defenses, preventing chemical and radiation incidents, whether it is looking at bioterrorist incidents and response, we're actively involved working with a range of partners to support this work. So that's what the National Public Health Agency does. But the infrastructure for public health in our country goes from national to regional to local. My own job is as London's Director of Public Health. I'm the Regional Director of Public Health, and I cover work both for Public Health England as well as for the NHS across our city. But within London and across the country, there are directors of public health in every local authority, and they provide advice to local authority political leaders as well as to executive leaders on how local authorities can help to improve the health and well-being of their local communities and address inequalities. Now, prior to being a regional director in London, I was actually a director of public health for the London Borough of Southwark. And there I was involved with running programs, including obesity programs, health check programs, working with the NHS, working with local communities around health, well-being, preparing for infectious diseases, and of course, ensuring that we're working with businesses and schools and other partners at the local level to improve health and well-being. So in a nutshell, health is more than the absence of diseases, and it certainly is more than the NHS. And public health leaders across the country are actively involved in ensuring that we have this rounded approach to promoting health, improving well-being, and tackling inequalities. That's a very impressive list of activities that I think many of us in the NHS might feel a, a little ashamed of. But I, I think the message of helping people have longer, healthier, happier lives is a really important one that clearly underpins all that you do. You, you've mentioned the COVID pandemic in, in terms of the work of Public Health England and, and, and the local bodies at this point. But I guess that's work that has been based on previous outbreaks and pandemics. And yet there are novel aspects of this current pandemic. Do you think that's posed an extra challenge to how we're responding? So a key part of the work that we do in public health is responding to infectious disease threats. And uh, all of us in public health would have been trained in uh, the skills of epidemiology. In fact, I myself have subspecialized in infectious disease epidemiology and for many years had led national programs for the prevention of HIV, sexually transmitted infections, tuberculosis and hepatitis, this cluster of infectious diseases. I think the COVID pandemic has posed a number of new threats to us. Um, even although we have been exposed to other coronaviruses before, such as SARS and MERS, 
And of course, we have the annual experience of preparing for a flu pandemic each year and the flu season as we're about to enter and the vaccination programs, etc. There are a number of new things which we were faced with, with the COVID-19 pandemic. The first was its rapid extension and spread from China when first identified and named uh, to other countries in the Far East. And then, of course, its entry into Europe, initially Italy, um, and then uh, and Spain, and of course, its impact in uh, the United Kingdom. Despite our estimates of the relative infectiousness of the condition, there were still many questions that we didn't know. We weren't absolutely sure about the modes of transmission. We weren't absolutely sure how infectious it was. Uh, we saw very distinct patterns of children not being as severely affected as adults were, which is very different to what we see, for example, in the flu uh, pandemics and other respiratory conditions, where children are very effective spreaders of the infectious disease. And we saw very distinct patterns emerging with the COVID pandemic. So, for example, the preponderance of men who were had severe disease and died from the infection, uh, the higher proportion of people of older age, emerging signals of its impact on uh, obesity and people living with multiple long-term conditions such as diabetes and heart disease. So even from these early days, this was a very distinct pattern that we were observing with the COVID pandemic. And it meant that not only did we have to learn and to adapt the interventions that were being put in place in other countries as the epidemic spread from the Far East to Europe and then to the United States. We had to both tailor those interventions so that they worked for us as a society. And there was the question about understanding and modeling the impact of that infectious disease on our own community and ensuring we were intervening at the right time with the right intervention. Now, there'll always be the opportunity to look back and ask questions of should we have done things earlier? Should we have done things at scale? But for many countries faced with the COVID epidemic, uh, the story is one of almost building that ship while sailing it, putting in place the interventions as we're learning more about the disease and adapting those interventions as our knowledge and our understanding has improved. Now, clearly there are lessons now that we are now armed with because we've been through the first three months, the first phase of the pandemic here in the UK. And there are things that we will strengthen moving forward. So providing protective equipment, thinking about risk assessment, strengthening the ways in which we're engaging and communicating and protecting local communities, a range of things that we now know that we will need to do as we prepare for this next phase of COVID. But it has been certainly a journey of learning, being agile, adapting and evaluating our interventions and of course moving at scale and pace. What's really helpful about being reminded of that whole journey we've been going through is the speed at which it unfolded and that in itself was one of the novel aspects that were often referred to. I guess in the age of information many of us just think well if you google something or go onto some social media platform you'll find the answer but here was something unfolding in quite a new way. And and as you say, that sort of idea of the response, the the ship you're building as you're sailing in it is a a really powerful message for, for people to reconsider, I think. So given that this is an extraordinary situation for most of us, I'm also remembering your work in Southwark would also have involved perhaps dealing with some extraordinary incidents in London. And I was just wondering whether some of your experiences at that local level have actually helped when it comes to thinking about the regional response. 
Yes, so I was really privileged um, after five years as one of Public Health England's national directors to be able to take a secondment to work right at the coalface, working in one of the more deprived boroughs in our city, for which health inequalities, thinking about urban poverty and deprivation, dealing with a highly diverse uh, community with multiple challenges, but also a community that had lots of hope Uh, ambition and drive for change and for improvement. And I had the privilege of being the director of public health and then the executive directors uh, in the council for uh, three years prior to taking up the uh, London role. And in Southwark, I had a very unique position because I was not only the director of public health, but I was also one of the executive directors and covered planning, regeneration, community engagement and um, public health in a very novel or unique cluster of portfolios, uh, which was at the time the only one in the country. So this brought together health with planning and place shaping and regeneration in addition to how we engage with communities. And I think that really, for me, signals what I think is the future of public health, which is grounding it in place, engaging and empowering communities and involving them in their response but also thinking about ways in which we can change the physical and built environment to be more health promoting. So in a sense, it's almost going back to the future because that's exactly where public health started, building better roads, canals, sewer systems, uh, and homes for people to thrive. My time in Southwark was a fascinating one. And I, I have to say that not only was I exposed to the passion and energy and commitment of local political leaders who are tasked with and committed to making the lives of their constituents better. But I was able to see the innovation and the agility and the pace at which local government operates and the real ability there to make differences in people's lives. So I started my time in Southwark with a major threat, and this was responding to the the London Bridge terror incident back in 2017. And that occurred within the first six weeks of me arriving on the job in Southwark. And I ended my time in Southwark um, with the beginning of the COVID pandemic. So um, at the beginning of my time, I learned very quickly about emergency response, both in the borough as well as in the city. Having not done emergency response throughout most of my career because I'm an infectious disease uh, specialist, it meant that I had to get up to speed very quickly with that. And in fact, learned that I actually enjoyed uh, working in emergency preparedness, planning and response. And over the past four years, I've really developed that as a, another subspecialty in which I uh, have provided and helped to develop national policies. And of course, it has put me in good stead for responding to the COVID pandemic. I think the other challenge that we found in uh, working in Southwark is really taking full advantage of some of the opportunities that we had to tackle wicked problems that we had in the borough. So the uh, growing epidemic of youth knife crime, which um, had certainly been increasing prior to lockdown this year and had become was beginning to become a major issue for London and for Londoners. We certainly were in the epicenter of that working in Southeast London and having to take and develop a public health approach to that. As a borough, we were also grappling with high rates of child obesity, which was highly associated with urban deprivation. Because if you are poor and you're surrounded by unhealthy foods and shops, then that dictates your ability to have a healthy diet and therefore to maintain a healthy weight. 
So that certainly was a big challenge that I took on in Southwark and a lot of the work there with a fantastic public health team really helped to put us on the map as leaders in, in looking at innovation for tackling child obesity. And then finally, we did quite a lot of innovative work on digital public health in the borough. Because we really, and one of the things I'm passionate about is not just innovation, but innovation for impact. And the key question that I asked the team was, so many of our public health interventions, the things that we do, are things that we developed in the 70s, 80s, and 90s using some of the same methodologies and approaches. But what does public health in the 21st century look like when so many of us are connected by phones and we have our digital personas and footprints? And are there more efficient ways of engaging and inspiring people around their health and well-being in the digital space that we should be unlocking? So a major initiative that I launched in Southwark was looking at digital public health and what we could do in this space. So it's been a fascinating time. And I think a lot of those values and experiences are certainly and bringing with me as I start this regional role. Again, that's a, an incredibly impressive range of activities and what you must have learned as you, as you indicate. But I get the impression, Kevin, that the leadership that you demonstrate is actually through being there with your colleagues, with the wider population, and that opportunity at a local level to be there with the community must have been incredibly powerful in terms of helping developments. Yes, it, it certainly was. And I think it harkens back to my own roots in public health, where I began, you know, very soon after medical school. One of the reasons I entered public health was that I was so inspired by the early response to the HIV epidemic back in the 80s and 90s. And as I was in medical school and we saw the first cases of HIV and I realized this as such a, a major social justice issue. And so a lot of my early research and work in public health was around HIV prevention. And that meant that you had to be involved in difficult issues. You had to deal with patients who were dying. You had to deal with honest and sometimes painful conversations with communities who were angry with you because not enough was being done fast enough. And it meant that you had to get engaged in dealing with the glaring inequalities, which both drove the epidemic of HIV, but of course made it even worse among uh, communities of color, again, bisexual men, migrants, and other people who are disadvantaged. So from a very early stage in my own career, I think that commitment to listening, to engaging, to being at the coalface and being reminded about why we do what we do and what values drive us have been a key part of my leadership. You bring up again, and, and so importantly, how much the current pandemic is going to have an impact on areas of inequality. And that although we may be in it together in one sense, there will be those that, that are going to bear the, the pain, the brunt of it more than others. In your thinking at a regional level, I'm guessing you're already thinking of how to try and ensure that the pandemic doesn't increase inequalities and, and perhaps there may even be opportunities to reduce them. How are you starting to think about that at this time, given that we're still relatively early on? So our experience with COVID-19 confirms that COVID, the pandemic, did not create health inequalities, but it actually shone a light on long-standing health inequalities and inequalities within our society, and to some extent has severely exacerbated them. 
And as we move from this first phase of the outbreak into a phase where we may be living with COVID for some time, I think there's some real concerns that now more than ever, we need to be uh, thinking about how we work even harder and with more purpose to reduce and tackle inequalities. Now, the data from the epidemic suggests that there is a disproportionality with COVID and its incidence in older individuals, in men more than women, in some Black, Asian and minority ethnic communities. Certainly if you're a smoker or obese, or if you have multiple long-term conditions, then you're more likely to have severe disease and uh, to die from COVID. And we know that there are many interactions between a number of these factors. So if you're a man, you're more likely to uh, be a smoker. Um, and you may have higher rates of obesity as well. And for many BME communities who are living in uh, situations of social and economic deprivation in, in poor, more disadvantaged parts of our city, then we know that those communities are more likely to have multiple long-term conditions a lot earlier in their life course. And therefore, that may well explain that disproportionate burden of disease. So I think there are a few lessons that we're learning from our experience with COVID. And as we prepare for living with COVID, I think there are three that I, you know, if I take away three things, these would be the most important ones, I think, for me. The first is really understanding that uh, because COVID is widening inequalities, our efforts to really think about how we narrow those inequalities becomes important. And that starts with understanding our data and ensuring that we have good, robust collection of data on ethnicity that helps us to know our local epidemics and to begin to target our interventions where we need to target them most. Second, we know that many communities may feel that they haven't been prepared well enough, either through the messages that they received or the messages weren't contextually or culturally specific enough for them to adapt and employ. So for example, the whole process of isolating at home when you're living in a overcrowded home or a multi-generational household um, has a very different meaning to those who may be able to isolate alone at home or isolate with uh, people who may be at equal risk. Uh, the issues related to faith in many communities has been really difficult. Uh, how do you square the need to self-isolate from your faith and religious beliefs in terms of congregating with others and praying with others or being with others as part of your mission? So these cultural, social, economic and faith factors need to be part of our thinking as we move into this next phase. In addition to the data, understanding how we ensure that our messaging and interventions become much more culturally competent, I think will be important. And then third, because we now know that uh, so many of the factors which drive uh, severity of disease and death are in fact preventable. So whether it is smoking or obesity or being better controlled as far as, as, far as your diabetes is concerned, we must ask ourselves, what more can be done in this phase when the incidence is low to be working with our communities to promote healthier behaviors, quitting smoking, managing weight, taking care of your mental health and well-being as factors that can help to build both individual resilience, but also resilience in the community as well. Inequalities aren't insurmountable. Uh, they are pervasive, but I believe that the epidemic has given us clear signals on what we need to do next. And when we know better, we must do better. I think the realization that people can always do something that could improve their health and their, their life chances in a sense, 
And so quitting smoking and, and being more active and perhaps thinking about diet and weight could all actually be part of that resilience building that goes way beyond anything about infection, that it actually would be helpful to you and those around you if you take seriously looking after yeah, your health. Absolutely. And so it's that opportunity then to begin to integrate these messages and to move away from thinking of COVID as something on its own. But how do we make it real to people's lives? And seeing that we will be living with COVID for quite some time until an effective vaccine is available, it means that the strategies that we have in our toolkit whether it is washing our hands, avoiding touching our faces, social distancing, wearing face coverings when outside and unable to socially distance, must be combined with some of the things you've just mentioned. So stopping smoking, being more active and managing weight and taking care of our mental health and well-being. So we have a more comprehensive approach to prevention messaging and then ensure that that's available in multiple languages, that we have community advocates and leaders that can help to translate and reinforce these messages and to ensure that we have mechanisms to evaluate how communities are hearing and receiving these messages and what behavior change is being uh, instilled as a result of hearing those messages. So I think there's so much that we can do, but in my mind, it's about being absolutely clear about the message, clear about the messenger, and how we evaluate that the message is actually landing and making that difference. That's an incredibly helpful message because I think for those of us in mental health, we're aware of that sort of anxiety about infection and spread, but the, the hopefulness that comes from how much more you can do to really improve your, your health that will actually help with the fact that we will be living with COVID-19 for a while to come. You have touched on mental health though, Kevin, and obviously that's a, a subject close to our hearts. Um, I wondered whether at this point we're yet in a position to know what it is we can do to sort of improve our mental health today. And again, there, there's quite a lot of anxiety around about what the impact is going to be on our mental health. How can we help? I've been thinking about it a lot, both from a personal perspective, but also clearly in the work that I do every day. I mean, these are extraordinary times. And, you know, no one, when we began ringing in the new year, with all the hope of a new decade and the excitement of a new decade, could have foreseen that we would have been in a lockdown for nearly two, going on three months dealing with a range of issues from anxiety and stress for many people, domestic violence for others, depression, isolation, and the impact of isolation on our mental health and well-being. And certainly I know that my inability to um, go to the gym and to regularly exercise has certainly on many occasions not helped my mental well-being because for me physical activity and being active is such an important part of maintaining and managing stress and building my resilience. So these have been extraordinary times and the experience therefore is seen across so many domains when it comes to mental health and for so many individuals. And indeed, some of the strategies that we have in normal times to improve our mental health, relying on friends and family, being physically active, taking time out to de-stress, to do the things that inspire us, that replenish us, volunteering, things that can really make a difference in our well-being, I think, have been hit hard. And so it's not surprising that as the epidemic has emerged, we've been seeing signs that actually 
um, Londoners and people across the country are dealing with mental health issues. We know this from calls to NHS 111. We know this from calls to helplines, calls to uh, uh, groups such as Thrive, where we are more than ever, and of course, charities such as the Samaritan in mind, where mo more than ever we now see a greater demand for services and support from members of the public. So moving forward then, there are three things which are going to be important. First, recognizing the trauma that we have been through, whether it's micro trauma or more severe trauma, because what we've been through is not normal and our ability to react to it will depend on a range of factors, including our own resilience, the own support that we've had during this time, and of course, the impact of this time itself. Remember that many people will be coming out of lockdown, perhaps with an uncertain uh, employment future. They may be coming out of lockdown with a disruption in their family relationships, or they may be coming out of lockdown with a physical or mental health issue that needs to be addressed. So the first is recognizing what we've been through and then ensuring that there's services and support services for people immediately. And we're signposting people to get the care they need. That is not just going back in the, to the street and going back to work, but it's also taking time to reflect on uh, what we've been through and to ensure that we're, we're supported. Second, I think it's going to be critical that we continue to have these open and honest conversations about mental health and well-being. And I'm really pleased that the Mayor of London has really been such a passionate advocate for addressing mental health and really has been setting the leadership pace in talking about these issues. And those conversations have to be held at every level because it is through removing that stigma and having those open and honest conversations that people will be more likely to identify early when they have problems and seek the help and support that they need. And then finally, because we are going to be living with COVID for the foreseeable future, and given the trauma that some of us have had as we've lost friends, family members and colleagues as a result of the epidemic, ensuring that we're thinking about bereavement support, thinking about how we build resilience, how we support people to deal with some of the aftermath of the epidemic as we move into this new phase will be incredibly important as well. And to not to underestimate just how deep and far-reaching these impacts are going to be, not just on our physical health, but on our mental health as well. But again, I think it's a really hopeful message that through building mental resilience, that we could, through sometimes quite simple activities, do things that do strengthen and do help with these challenges, as you say, that are so unprecedented. I'm struck listening to you and, and the work of the mayor in this space as well, that Londoners feel a very strong attachment being Londoners to the city. And they often extend that to each other as well and, and want to support each other. Would you give any advice to Londoners on how they can help out at this point and contribute to the recovery? Yes, you know, I have to, first of all, acknowledge that as a city, this has been a tough time for us, but we've pulled through. Remember that the epidemic really, London was almost first off the mark. Some of the early cases were first diagnosed in London. We had the highest numbers of infections recorded, uh, highest numbers of deaths in the country. Um, but the good news is that Londoners really pulled together with an isolating, shielding, uh, staying away from work, working from home, uh, practicing the hand-washing techniques, all of the things we were asked to do, Londoners really, really took that on board. And our rate of decline after the peak in London has just been phenomenal. 
And now we're seeing uh, very few cases of COVID occurring each day. And of course, deaths are um, very, very few as well. So this has been a huge success story. And I think it shows the testament of Londoners to pull together during these tough times to um, ensure that we're not only taking care of ourselves and our families, but of each other. And as we begin to re-enter society, I think there are again three things that I think will be critical for us to continue to maintain as a city. So the first is ensuring that we continue to practice the things that we know matter in preventing and controlling COVID. And throughout the podcast, I've been coming back to them because we know they work <laughs> and they're effective. So I'm going to say one more time, <laughs> you know, washing our hands, staying at home if unwell, ensuring that we're social distancing. And if you can't social distance, remember to wear your, your, your facial coverings, especially in the tube, in the buses and in shops. Um, and for goodness sake, if you are feeling unwell, let me just repeat that. Do stay at home and get yourself tested for COVID. And then, if necessary, isolate and inform your contacts. So those are the things that Londoners will have to do. And that will be part of our prevention package. In the same way, you know, that over the years we learned if you want to prevent HIV, use a condom consistently and correctly every time. If you want to prevent your uh, flu and the flu season, make sure you get the flu vaccine. These are the things that we must do and every Londoner must do to ensure that we uh, take care of ourselves and others. Second, I think it's really important as we move into this next phase that Londoners are mindful of the data. And the more that we're out and about and mixing is the more likely it is that any reintroduction of the virus will spread quickly. So being alert, uh, understanding about the threat levels, understanding what's happening with levels of infection in the community, and if necessary, to scale up or scale back on what we're doing in terms of social distancing, staying at home, etc., will really be important. And so listening to what authorities are saying about what we need to put in place to control the epidemic and what we need to do is going to be important. Third and finally, we have done a phenomenal job of taking care of others. I know so many stories of people who have been taking care of their neighbors, have been checking in on Zoom, have been having neighborhood wine evenings or neighborhood evenings just to talk and share their experiences. Keeping connected with those near and far, for those dear to us, colleagues and friends, has been a key hallmark of how we've got through this. And there's no reason for it to change as we move into this next phase. We often hear that London is perhaps one of the most unfriendly cities in the world. I would argue that actually when you become a Londoner, you know how to find the support that you need. And that really becomes a hallmark of who we are as a city. So building on our strengths, I think, will be important. Taking care of each other, practicing what we know works, and ensuring that we're staying alert and listening to the guidance that we need that we've followed so well over the past three months in case we need to do anything more to protect ourselves and those we love. I believe in behavioral science. Um, the message is more likely to be acted upon if the messenger is someone that you can trust and understand. And I, I think the way you've unpacked all of those key directions there for things that we should act on, Kevin, I think makes it clearer than some other messages we may have heard. So that's a fantastic summary. All those things we can do as Londoners for ourselves and for each other. 
We've now sort of almost reached the end of our time, and, and we do normally at this point allow hardworking individuals, and I think you tick that box, to allow yourself a bit of indulgence and a, a kind of thought experiment on how we might do this if it wasn't all so real. <laughs> and so the question that we put to the people that we interview is, if you were about to enter isolation or lockdown, and you had the knowledge ahead to be able to take three famous or prominent people with you, Think carefully, because you may be stuck with them for some time. Who would you take? Oh, that's a really, really difficult one. So, can they be dead or alive? And they can't. They can be dead, and they can even be fictional. <laughs> right. So, I'd want a singer with me, mm -hmm. and so I'd want to take, if I could, my favorite male vocalist, who's Luther Vandross, who was a an amazing African American uh, soul singer from the right up until the 90s and noughties, he passed away, but has left a legacy of the most beautiful music. And because I fancy myself as a singer too, to be able to spend time in lockdown practicing scales and notes and singing some of his tunes would, I think, be a key part of my well-being. Uh, I can see a TikTok duet coming on there, Indeed. I believe. Um, <laughs> I uh, love stand-up comedy. And having the ability to be able to laugh both at myself and at the situation, I think would be another key strategy to survive lockdown. And so I would go for someone like Joan Rivers, who with her irreverent <laughs> comedy and style and take no prisoners approach, I think would either have me depressed or have me really, really <laughs> laughing all the time. Because I think the ability to laugh at oneself, especially in these really tough times, um, and especially when you're doing really stressful jobs, is really important because it humanizes us. And then the third is, uh, given my love of the arts and my own uh, background as a painter, uh, I would love to isolate with somebody who I could learn some really good techniques from and to spend some time just painting and exploring the, the wonder that is the use of color and light to create something new. Um, and I have many favorite artists. I'm not going to mention any names specifically, um, but suffice to say a, a famous artist who I could sort of lose myself and in time with, I think would be my third choice. Well, that's a first for us, a painter, and it's a really smart choice because in some of the work we've been doing, I think we're discovering that these creative processes are often brilliant mindfulness exercises because the focus and the creativity and the achievement, as well as, you say, the, the aesthetic appeal of all that colour and form would really take you away from some of the stresses for a while. Uh, that's if Joan Rivers hasn't <laughs> sort of broken you by then. Indeed. <laughs> the other thing, of course, in, in giving you those three things, is that it highlights my other passion in life, which is learning. So, in fact, all three, well, certainly two of the three, I'd be learning from and with them. And as I said, the third, it, it just came back to me that actually this is such a trait of mine, that learning is one of the things that I do and do really well. And here I am in isolation yeah. wanting to learn once again. So, uh, a great question. Thank you for asking. Well, it would be a nice one for you to rank at some point learning experiences, because I suspect uh, Joan Rivers <laughs> might come soon after a terrorist incident. But <laughs> we'll leave that for now. And um, also ask if you could take 
some sort of media. Sometimes we thought of something you could put on your phone. So it could be music or a film or a book or it could even be a recording of an event. Uh, it could be some stand-up comedy, I guess. So would there be something like that that would be really nice to have in there with well, you? Oh, yes. Um, one of the things I'm doing is learning to be a DJ. So I would like a oh, turntable okay. and a few albums so I could learn to, to mix and spin. And uh, that would fit in very nicely with the work that I'd be doing with Luther Vandross. Okay, so so yes, we'll just need, you'll probably need some activity for Miss Rivers at some point to keep her out of the way whilst you're, you're emceeing with Luther, but um, that, that does sound like a very creative and uh, innovative way of, of using all your sort of opportunities. So I just would like to thank you again. I really hope everyone who listens to this can really hear all the thinking that is going on behind all those important messages. And staying alert has often been misunderstood, I think, but you made it so clear we're going to be living with this for a long time and this is no time to just switch our minds off to the reality of what's going on so thank you very much kevin great thank you so much it's been a pleasure our music is kindly provided by key changes a charity offering award-winning music engagement and recovery services for people experiencing mental health issues. Thank you to all at Key Changes.